episode of Calm, Cool, and Connected is brought to you by Bridgeside Medical Clinic, Chesapeake Integrated Behavioral Healthcare, and Edgar Casey's ARE. Now more than ever, we have an opportunity to be a positive force in the world, to help heal the divide, to treat each other and ourselves with respect. But with so many tools out there, from meditation to physical training, proper nutrition, therapy, and so many others, we all need a little help navigating all the options. Join us as we share in-depth information, insights, and thought-provoking discussions that will help answer your questions about how to stay calm, cool, and connected during these times. Welcome to Calm, Cool, and Connected, your guidebook to peace of mind. Hello, and welcome to Calm, Cool, and Connected. I'm your host, Dr. Elizabeth Bedrick. Culture plays a significant role in one's view of mental health, as well as also influences our beliefs around the treatment process, what it looks like, who's involved, and so on. As a mental health professional, it's crucial that we engage in cultural competency trainings and other events that really help to increase our awareness around this, but also helps us to be more sensitive and prevent maybe some of these microaggressions or these more subtleties that a lot of us aren't even aware of. Joining us today is Brandon Shindo, a licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist. He's also the CEO and co-founder of KNB Therapy. Brandon's here to talk with us today about therapy for Asian Americans and also bringing some awareness around the cultural aspects of mental health. Hi, Brandon. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to have you as well. This is such a great topic for us to be discussing. Before we jump in, if you could give me a little bit about your background and, and your role in the mental health field. Sure. So I am a fourth generation Japanese American. I'm the son of two blue collar working parents and, and a grandson to two survivors of the Japanese American internment camps. Um, wow. I practice in, in particular myself specialized really in Asian American mental health. Okay. Which, so before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, for myself as well as a mental health professional, obviously very different backgrounds, very different cultural experiences. But we were talking about this concept of the microaggressions and these subtleties that are coming up more frequently. Can you help our viewers to understand that? Because I think a lot of people don't really even understand that term microaggression. Yeah, you know, it's a term that it wasn't until I formally went to graduate school that this term became more apparent that growing up as an Asian American, there were certain microaggressions that came about as such as, you know, Asian Americans are good in math. Or mm -hmm. that, you know, we are, you know, A-plus students, that we are very passive and very law-abiding, all of these things. And it wasn't until I formally went to, to school and had experience that I started to realize that these types of microaggressions really contribute to a lot of feelings of anxiousness and even symptoms of depression. And that is so interesting because that those stereotypes that you're describing in terms of being really smart or being law-abiding and creates this idea of the, the good kid in the Asian culture. Tell us about that stereotype and how, how it does influence the belief system. Most definitely. You know, recently I've been doing a lot of posts on social media about like, what is a good kid in the Asian American family? And, mm. you know, as I was generating these posts that a lot of like common themes arise for me that I could relate to, such as like, you are a good kid in an Asian American family often when you do not have big reactions or when you are, you embrace a lot of emotional stoicism, or also that when you are more quiet, or that you say yes to everything. 
Right. And how do you, if you could describe for us this difference between the individualistic society, which the Western society certainly would be identified in that way, versus more of the collectivist society where the focus is more on the whole. Can you provide an understanding of the differences there? Sure. You know, oftentimes in Asian households, this collectivistic type of mindset is generations deep. And so when we think about this, it's a lot of uh, your behaviors and your actions and your thoughts are a reflection of your family. And so being a representative of your family, you want to conduct it in such a way that it is leaving a good uh, reputation for your family versus more so acting just on your own needs, wants, and, and reputation, which we see more in individualistic societies. And that's, yes, I I see that frequently, even when you're describing that to be identified as the good kid, you're quiet or you're reserved. Or when I was teaching a class years ago, Psychology 101, and we were talking about culture and I was describing that, that was one of the examples that was provided is that often in the collectivist society, if somebody is maybe upset or even tearful about something, maybe they won't be as likely to express it as to not not only as you're describing because they are the the image of everyone, but also not to disrupt anyone else. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, disruption is a big piece of like, you know, if we elude too much of our own emotion, our own behaviors, and we disrupt the flow of other things, it, mm-hmm. it can be seen as, you know, once again, disruptive. You know, you are seen as, you know, calling attention to yourself. All of these things that very much so in an Asian household is seen as almost taboo or, you know, is, is looked down upon. Sure. And what, what do you see the, the barriers, the detriment? How is that impacting specifically for Asian Americans? How is that impacting mental health? You know, I think definitely, particularly over the pandemic and all the things kind of going on in the world, like these, the microaggressions and cultural values are all combining into a perfect storm. And so we're seeing an increase in symptoms of anxiety, where we're seeing things a lot of much so more of imposter syndrome, difficulty setting boundaries, difficulty code switching between being at home with your Asian American family and having to go to a workforce that may be not accustomed to your cultural values. Can you describe that for us a bit further? Can you help provide an understanding of what that is like? I mean, that is such a great point to you are literally leaving one culture to go to the next within the same day. Tell us more about that. I think there's two kind of components to this that really stick out in my mind. One is like when you go to work, you're often told that like to provide feedback, to be very assertive and all of these things. Now, that's very difficult to do if you grew up in a household where you were to be seen and not heard. And so being able to use, you know, assertive communication is definitely something that requires that code switching. And the second part of this is like the, re- the receiving compliments that if you grew up in a household, which, which I did, my father would give me a grin or a nod. And that was like, that's all I needed to know that I knew that he was proud of me. But when sure. I work and people are, you know, praising me and all these things, it feels very uncomfortable because it's something that I didn't grow up with. How do you, in the work that you do, with Asian Americans specifically. So when you have that background and you mentioned at the beginning that that is you uh, specialized, correct, in, in working with that population, what is the objective of your work? Is it to help them to become more accustomed to the one culture? Is it helping them to find the balance? Like what really becomes the objective of your work? 
I think the word balance is key for me of, you know, how do we coexist as having bicultural and a bicultural identity in a world we can't be too far to the left, too far to the right. If we can find Uh, a nice medium in the middle, I know I've done my job. Okay. Okay. And what do you think is, what's the importance of another Asian American individual receiving services with you, someone who really understands it? What do you think the importance is there? I think the therapeutic process is, you know, 90% rapport and building trust. And if you're able to connect with somebody who has similar lived experiences, there's a different connection that's there. And being able to truly have that empathy for your client or vice versa, and being able to relate on that level, that humanistic level, I think that ultimately that's the most important part of when individuals come to me. I can remember microaggressions. I can remember certain things that they're saying that I can relate to on a deeper level rather than just being educated in it. Sure. That's a great point. What are some common barriers that you see for Asian Americans specifically in regard to receiving uh, mental health treatment? I think going back to that collectivistic conversation we had earlier about this piece of like bringing shame to the family. That uh, mental health and mental illness oftentimes in the AAPI community are seen as the same thing. And so I okay. always try to let my clients know that men- we all have mental health. Now, mental illness is something that, you know, for some of us, we struggle with or whatever it should be. But separating those two things tends to be the, the biggest thing. And what do you think that in the work that you do, what are some of these benefits that you're seeing for your clients? What are some of the takeaways that they're receiving? Or how do you know that? you've been effective in that therapeutic alliance. Yeah, I think that looking at their burnout within their occupational work. And so looking at, are they getting burnt out as much? Are they able to set boundaries? But most importantly, are they able to help self-compassion when they're not perfect and not the model minority? Okay, which is, yeah, I mean, so important. Maybe what would be one takeaway that you would give people to increase self-compassion? To practice uh, positive affirmations and just the, using the words of, you know, I forgive myself. It's okay. I think that's yeah. huge. Okay. Great information. Where can our viewers find you, Brandon? They can find me at www.kmbtherapy.com or they can also find me on my social media handle, which is at kmbtherapy.com. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate the insights. Thank you. And thank you all for tuning in to this episode of Call and Cool and Connected. Please make sure to find us on Facebook and Instagram, and also make sure to rate and subscribe to our podcast so that others can discover our content as well. Thank you again for joining us in this episode of Call and Cool and Connected. 